You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, good morning, Creekside. That was intense. I hope you're ready for James after that. Good to see you. If you're joining us online, welcome. So glad to have you here. Uh, My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your first time with us in person here at Creekside, welcome. We're so glad that you decided to come and worship with us this morning. And if it is your very first time with us, we'd love to offer you a free gift this morning, a sippy cup or a water cup or a water bottle. And that is our gift to you. And now you can get that over the info desk after the service. If you would like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. Please take that out, fill it out, and then the offering slot is right over there, and that's where you can put it, and we will be following up with you. Well, as we start James today, let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever had this experience? So maybe you're a parent. And um, you're on your way to church, and you're furious at your children because they are wicked (laughs) and rebellious, and they do not want to go to church. And you are barking at them. Get in the car. Get dressed. Get out of the car. Get into church. And and then you're you're walking into church, and you're a little late, and then you, you come into church, and this switch flips. And you go from, if you don't get dressed, I'm going to, and then it's, to you be the glory forever. Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe you don't have kids. Maybe this has happened to you. You're you're in the service, you are filled up, and you're singing, to you be the glory. And then you get in your car, and you pull out, and you've got to get on MacArthur. And there is a person who will not let you in. And that switch flips again. And you go from, to you be the glory, and you're to, to calling down curses on this driver. Has that ever happened? Maybe you get up early, you read the Bible, and you open up your Bible app, or you, you open up your literal physical Bible, and, and you read, and you think, man, I got up and read the Bible, and good job. That was encouraging. But then you finish, you close the book, or you close the app, and, and instantly, the switch flips again, and the worries and cares of the day just overwhelm you, and you completely forget what you read about. And in fact, by the time you get to midday, you're wondering, what on earth did I read this morning? What was that about? Or, or maybe you're, you're concerned about serving the poor, or the downtrodden, or the oppressed, and if there, is a, if there is a ministry thing at church to do that, yes, I am in. I'm going to go, and you serve, and you do it with joy, but the minute you're done, you think that was ministry time, the rest of life, this is me time. You ever find it hard to, to inconvenience yourself for people just in the daily rhythms of life? Because that time's for you. That's, that's not the time you've committed to, to minister. What, what is that switch in our heads? What is that? Well, as followers of Jesus, we face this temptation. It is a constant temptation. And the temptation is this, to divide life into Jesus stuff and non-Jesus stuff. To think that we have a religious life over here and it's sort of separate from real life, which is over here. 
This is a constant danger for Christians to switch in and out of Jesus mode in our thinking. And so how do you overcome that way of thinking and living? Well, that's what the letter of James is all about. It's about overcoming our natural tendency to divide life and to see that Jesus is Lord of all of life. It's a powerful book. It is not a comfortable book. But it is a necessary book because this is a constant danger for us as followers of Jesus. So today, as we jump into this series on undivided devotion and what that looks like, two things, really simply. The message of James, what is James getting at? Why is he getting in our business? And second, just briefly, the mindset that James wants us to cultivate. But before we jump in, let's ask for God's help and go to him in prayer. Jesus, you declare through your scripture that we are not our own because we have been bought with a price. Jesus, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. You have claimed us as your own, and there is not one square inch of our lives that you do not lay claim to and say, mine. Jesus, would we rejoice in that? Would we rejoice in knowing that you are Lord all of, over all of life? And that is very good news. And by your spirit, would you begin to reveal this morning areas that we have cordoned off from you, that we might know the joy of living a whole integrated life devoted to you. Thank you for being wholly devoted to us. We pray in your name. Amen. So the message of James, why are we studying James? Why James? Why now? Jeff, why did you pick this book? That's a good question. I have a confession, family. Um, I'm not creative at all. I'm terrible at coming up with ideas for like sermon series and stuff like that. And that should be a little disconcerting to you because my job here is to pick what we're preaching through. Uh, but I just, I often have no idea what we should preach through. Um, but I do have one conviction about preaching, just one basic conviction particularly when we as the people of God gather on the Lord's day, in the Lord's name, in the Lord's presence to hear from the Lord's word, which is what we're doing right now. And the one conviction I have about what we preach through doesn't come from James, it actually comes from Paul and something he says in Acts 20. This verse haunts me when I think about this. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you what the whole counsel of God. Paul says this to the leaders of the church in Ephesus after he has spent three years with them. He spent three years in one place planting one church, and day and night he spent his time teaching and preaching the scripture. And he was so intent on preaching the scripture that after three years he can say, I've done what I am accountable to do. I've preached all of it. Now, three things stand out to me. First, Paul says he's accountable to the people he preaches to. He's accountable to them. He, he's under obligation to teach them the word of God and everything it says about the truth of sin and coming judgment and repentance and holiness. And he says if he does not teach that, their blood is on whose hands? His. He has to be clear about the truth as one who will give an account. 
And that's true for me too. I will give an account for what I teach you. So you need to know things, not just the things we like to hear, but everything that Scripture has to hear us. Second, notice that Paul says he presented all of what God says, the whole counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament, the entire arc of the biblical story, every genre, every style, every nook, every cranny, not just the parts Paul liked, but the whole counsel. And that leads to the third thing that stands out to me about this. Paul says, I did not shrink back from doing this which tells me there's always a temptation to shrink back, to not give you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, to, 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 to qualify things, to, to neglect certain teachings. Paul didn't do that. He didn't make negotiable what was non-negotiable. He didn't preach in a way that died the death of a thousand qualifications. And that point really resonates with me because I'll be honest, there are parts of the Bible that I like. And there are parts of the Bible, this is a little more difficult to preach. And yet it's just as much the word of God. And here's what I know about myself. If I got my way preaching to you, there are things I would preach about a lot and things I would not preach about as much. <laughs> and that the word of God wouldn't reign here as much as my personality and my preferences. And so here's my conviction, that I want us to be a church that's shaped by the word of God and everything it says about faith in Christ, which means we've got to preach the whole counsel of God. And now that makes preaching a lot simpler, because here's what I do. I just kind of look, based on Paul's words in Acts 20 here, okay, what haven't we preached on in a while? And I guess we've got to hear that. <laughs> what have I neglected? And that makes sermon selection a lot simpler because we haven't preached on James in like 15 years. But it also makes it unpleasant because now we've got to teach on something that can be hard to listen to. I know a lot of y'all like James, and that just weirds me out. But, but this is a good and necessary book for us, and I want you to see why this message is so helpful. First, who is James, and, and what's so remarkable about this letter? James the man uh, is a remarkable figure in the early church. This is James, actually in Hebrew his name's Jacob, so we could, should call this book Jacob, but we'll call it James because that's how it gets transliterated. He, he's a truly remarkable figure in the early church because this is the son of Mary, which means he's a half-brother of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, it's very clear that James, during Jesus' earthly ministry, rejects him, mocks him, reviles him that James' own brother was not a follower of Jesus, and then something happened. And we're not exactly sure what happened, but we know from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus, after his resurrection, he appeared to lots of different people, and one of the people he appeared to individually was James, his brother. And apparently, when James came to know his brother as the risen Lord of the universe, he had a little change of heart. And he became not just a brother of Jesus, but a servant of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, and actually ended up becoming the key leader of the first church, the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he was highly regarded. In the early church, he was known as James the Just or the Righteous because of his personal piety, his devotion to helping the poor. He was known as a pious man. He was known as a peacemaker. If you read Acts 
you see that James really helped to overcome tensions between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. James had this deep burden for peacemaking in the early church and a deep burden for his own Jewish people. You can think of Paul as the leader in the early church who was just dead set on reaching the nations. James was dead set on reaching his own people, the people of Israel. And throughout his life, it is clear that he tried to build bridges between the early Christian movement and the the religious establishment within Judaism. Now, his peacemaking efforts in the church worked. His peacemaking efforts with the Jewish religious establishment did not. And in fact, we can locate the time of his death from the writings of Josephus, the Roman historian. We know James was executed by the high priest Ananus in AD 62, thrown off the temple and then beaten to death because of his commitment to Jesus, because he refused to compromise. James is this remarkable figure. What we are looking at is a remarkable letter. And it's remarkable because first, how early it is. If you put the historical data together, it appears that this letter that James writes, it's written sometime probably in the mid-40s A.D., so we're talking 10 to 15 years after the death of resurrection of Jesus. So this is really our glimpse into the most primal, primitive beliefs of the early Christians. This is an early letter, and it is a very Jewish letter. What's clear from the New Testament is that that Christianity has its roots in Judaism. It grows out of Judaism as the fulfillment of Judaism. And for the first few decades of the church, every Christian was Jewish. And so James is very Jewish, addressing a very Jewish audience. And we'll look at why that's significant in a minute. But here's what we know for sure is that James believed that these readers needed a wake-up call because there was a disconnect between their profession of faith and their practice of faith. And that leads me back to this point about picking James, because James is going to make us uncomfortable. And if you think, oh, no, there's something wrong with that, no, that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. That's why I'm tempted to shrink back from teaching it. And, and you might say, Jeff, why, do you, why don't you like James? I love James. A lot of people like James. And you know why people like James? Because it's practical. It's intensely practical. In fact, there are 108 verses in James. There are 50 commands in James. So about one command for every two verses. It doesn't have an intricate structure or outline. It's more like just a rapid fire list through a dizzying array of subjects challenging us to obedience in all of these different areas. Here's what's great about James. It's clear. It's clear. Here's the problem with James. It's clear. It's clear. You will not walk away from these sermons thinking, but what was the takeaway? What was I supposed to get from that? That's that's not James. James is not so much focused on theology as the practical outworking of theology and the way it will touch on every part of our lives. And so people like it because it's plain, it's practical, and yet that's the problem because it is painfully clear if when you read James, whether or not you are living consistently with what you believe. James just gives you litmus test after litmus test if your convictions are real convictions because they will lead to actions. James draws from two primary sources 
in this practical counsel. He's drawing from the wisdom tradition, Proverbs 1 through 9. And he's also drawing deeply from the teaching of Jesus, particularly in places like Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke 6, which is the Sermon on the Plain. And if you know anything about Jesus' teaching in those places, it is challenging to the core. It is meant to unsettle us and draw us to dependent faith in God. And so you should not be able to write, read James, which is really an expounding on the Sermon on the Mount, without feeling, mm. this is unsettling. And if we do, if we are able to read this happily, comfortably, I think something's wrong with us. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. That's James. Or as one writer has called it, a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. This is not a book to be read with tranquil pleasure, but often the uncomfortable books are the most helpful to us because they sober us up. They, they sober us up to what our real priorities are, and there is a kind of spiritual inebriation that can happen to Christians. And here's what it is, and here is the danger that James is constantly addressing, and it's this that one of our great dangers as followers of Jesus is to substitute religiosity for repentance. Is to substitute religiosity for repentance. What does that mean? It means there is always a temptation to limit the scope of what God calls us to. And then to make the litmus test of spiritual maturity our litmus test rather than God's. And, and so, listen, I... I might know a lot of Bible. I might be really good at attending church and religious functions. I might have an emotional experience during worship and be very expressive. Now, we need to know the Bible. We should gather as believers in Jesus. It's great to have an emotional experience in worship, but here's the problem. We make those things the benchmarks of Christian maturity, and we assume Jesus is Lord of our lives because we have a lot of religious activity, and there might be massive areas of our life where we are unrepentant. Massive areas where we have not ceded to Jesus' lordship. We have not given him an inch but we think we are okay because we do lots of religious stuff. This is a danger in the Old Testament. It's a danger in the New Testament. It's a danger for God's people today. It is the trap of self-righteousness. That we define what it means to live a righteous life on our terms, not God's, and we deceive ourselves. And that's who James is writing to. These are people good at religion. These are Jewish Christians, okay? So when these people came to know Jesus, they did not come out of wild, licentious, pagan backgrounds. These were deeply devoted followers of Yahweh who had become convinced that the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures was Jesus, Yeshua. They came to believe in him as the fulfillment of their hopes and expectations. They knew their Bibles, they grew up going to church, going to synagogue. They were devoted people. 
And now they're suffering for a whole variety of reasons, and they're tempted to shrink back from full devotion to Jesus. Here's the thing. If you looked at the people that James is writing to, externally, they look like they have it together. They are observant. They are devout. And yet, there are areas where they are holding back from Jesus, and this gets to James' purpose in writing His target is to combat something that we could call spiritual double-mindedness. Spiritual double-mindedness. Being of two minds about our devotion to Jesus. Thinking with one part of us, I'm devoted, and yet knowing in another part, I don't want anything to do with what Jesus is calling me to. We tend to suppress that part. The, The Greek term that James uses twice is di-psychos. Di means two. Psychos means mind or soul, being of two minds. That is what James is going after. He doesn't want us to be double-minded. Another way he describes this is as deception. He says again and again, be not deceived. Do not deceive yourselves. How do we deceive ourselves? Well, by thinking we're following Jesus when our actions betray us. By thinking because I do these things, I follow Jesus, when our actions would say, actually, you don't follow Jesus in a lot of areas of your life. See, James does not allow us to take comfort in our imagined religiosity because the book is just so stinking practical. It just makes so clear how our faith will inform our actions if it's genuine faith. And this is a real challenge if you are a seasoned follower of Jesus because here is something I've found as believers get older. I found it true of myself as well. You start to assume you kind of have it together in the Christian life. And then you assume that the way to grow is just to know more stuff. Yeah, I've kind of got this Christianity thing figured out. Now I just need to grow in my knowledge of Scripture and keep deepening my knowledge and deepening my knowledge. And, oh, I need to find another way to deepen my knowledge. It's great to deepen your knowledge. You know what is not Christian maturity? Just deeper knowledge. Christian maturity is applied knowledge. And see, this exposes a trap that all of us can fall into where we just think maturity is more in-depth Bible studies. You know what? It's more in-depth obedience. That's the issue. That's maturity. I I love this story I heard about a pastor. He was talking to a guy in his his congregation who'd been walking with Jesus for a while, and the guy was frustrated because he didn't feel like his church offered really meaty Bible studies. He said, we need to go in-depth, man. We need to get deeper into the Word. And he said, yeah, I agree, man. He's like, well, what's the last book you studied? And he said, oh, I studied James. And I love how this pastor responded. He said, that's great. I love James. Wow, well, if you study James, I mean, man, how's it going caring for widows and orphans? I'm sure you're visiting the sick and praying with them. I'm sure you're radically reorienting your life around the poor and the oppressed and disadvantaging yourself for them now because you read James. Man, how are you leaning into resolving conflict in your life because you read James and And the guy said, what are you talking about? And I love the pastor's response. He said, wait a minute, I thought you studied James. I thought you studied it. See, if you study it, that means you start doing it. 
You do not have a fruitful Bible study just because you hear the word. You have a fruitful Bible study because you heard it, you understood it, you believe it, and now here's how I'm going to go obey it. And until you've completed that cycle, you're not studying the Bible the way Scripture talks about studying the Bible. So this is a gut punch to us to say no matter how much I know about the Bible, it's how much I obey of the Bible that determines Christian maturity. The target is double-mindedness. Conversely, James' goal is to help us overcome the dichotomized Christian life and pursue what we could call an integrated Christian life. Wholeness is James' goal. A word that recurs throughout James is the word perfect. Do you know how many times perfect occurs in James? Seven. Isn't that great? Biblical number of perfection. It's just perfect. Perfect shows up seven times in the book of James. And the vision of perfection that James is talking about, when he calls Christians to perfection, he's not saying Christians need to bat a thousand. That if you don't get to perfect obedience in the Christian life, then, then you're not really saved. That's not what he's saying. Perfection in Greek has this idea of completeness, wholeness, maturity. It has this idea that the, the faith in your head comes to fruition in your heart and your hands. And so that there isn't a disconnect between what you think, what you say, and what you do. It's living an integrated Christian life. And that's really the Christian growth. It's looking at every area of our life and saying, well, I confess this with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. What would it look like if I believed it in my heart that Jesus was Lord? And then what would it look like in the practical outworking of my hands to make Jesus Lord? And this is why James is such a blessing and a help to us, because it is going to help us identify blind spots. Blind spots. You know the problem with blind spots? You can't see them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're blind. And, and, and this is a problem, right? Because it's not just that there's something wrong. It's that you don't know that something's wrong. And you couldn't know unless someone else pointed it out. Think about driving and your blind spot. I don't care how good the technology in your car is, you have a blind spot. And, and my wife is the great blind spot identifier for me. Uh, and she, I, I cleared this, this illustration with her, don't worry. So, uh, you know, she, she likes to give a little coaching when I'm driving. Just a little bit. Constructive. Honey, honey look out for, hey, did you, did you did, yeah. And, and, and I don't appreciate this all the time. And I'll say, you know, honey, you know, imagine if I was driving by myself, I'd be dead. I mean, I can't believe you even let me on the road. What would happen if you weren't here? Here's the uncomfortable truth, though. There have been several times where she has seen something I haven't. And I've actually avoided an accident because she, and in her mind, that vindicates her doing this forever because I've been right. I've been right. It is not comfortable to have your blind spots pointed out, but it is absolutely necessary. If we will humble ourselves under the word and say, how am I doing? Not, not how do I think I'm doing based on my standard, but by God's standard. That's the only way to overcome a blind spot. And what we're going to see in this series is that the movement towards wholeness, towards healing, towards integration in the Christian life it will play out in every area of our lives. 
I, I think we have to, to be very careful how we think about what is the evidence that someone's a Christian? What does that look like? Because according to James, it's going to be much bigger and broader than just religious activities. It's not just, yeah, this person really knows their Bible. That's true. It's not just, wow, this person shows up to lots of church things. Yeah, you should be faithful to attend church things. It's not just that this person has a way of talking that's impressive or seems very devoted. You know, the way to see a mature Christian is, gosh, how do they respond to suffering and hardship in their life? Are they attentive to the needs of disadvantaged people around them? Are they slow to anger? Do they talk unlike the world talks? Um... Is there a peaceableness and a reasonableness about them in conflict where they can be in the heat of intense conflict and not be overtaken by emotion and not keep peace or destroy peace but actually make peace? Are they the kind of employees that anyone would love to have because they have such integrity in what they say and what they do? You will see that Jesus' lordship impacts everything, everything, and makes you a distinctive kind of person, salt and light, not just in religious stuff, but in everything. So, that's where we're going. And the question we're going to ask again and again and again is this. If Jesus is Lord of my life, how will it impact fill in the blank? That's the question James is going to raise to us again and again and again. If Jesus is Lord over my tongue, if Jesus is Lord over my time, if Jesus is Lord over my treasure, how will it impact the way I live? And today, and I will tread lightly here because my dad is going to tread heavily next week, is the first question James addresses, which is this, if Jesus is Lord of my life, how will it impact the way I view suffering and hardship? Because the truth of Scripture is that Christians should approach challenge and trial in a way that is radically different than the world because they believe there's a Lord who is over their trials. And that's the first place James, that's where James starts. James 1, 1 through 4, James, a servant of God and to the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I told you it was going to be a gut punch. He challenges us right from the beginning. James, writing to the 12 tribes. James, as we said, is writing to Jewish Christians. He is sent to the Jews. And he's writing to people who were physical descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Jews, based on the Old Testament, had this expectation that when the Messiah came, when he set the world right, these 12 tribes which had been divided would be gathered up again under one Lord. And, and James echoes that expectation here. He's writing to literal descendants of these 12 tribes, but he says we are the, the regathered people of God under this new Messiah, Jesus, who, who fulfills our hopes, and our expectations. So these are Jewish Christians, and they've been regathered around Jesus, their Messiah, and yet they are scattered. They're scattered. That's why it says the 12 tribes of the dispersion. The, the Jews, the, this term diaspora, 
was used to refer to Jews that had been removed from their ancestral homeland, from from modern-day Palestine. Jews had been sent out from there, and there were Jews dispersed all over the Mediterranean world, and these Jewish Christians share in that experience. They've been scattered. Now, why were they scattered? The clearest indication we get, I think, is in Acts 11. What, What the writer Luke tells us there is that after the persecution of Stephen in the early church, the Jewish Christians were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's Acts eleven nineteen. 19. So these believers have experienced trials because of their commitment to Jesus, and the heat got ratcheted up so hot in Jerusalem that they had to flee into Syria and Judea and the surrounding areas. So that's one hardship. That's one various trial they're facing. Another trial they're facing is that they appear to be impoverished and, and needy. We know, reading on in Acts 11, that during this time, in the, in the 40s AD, that's the time period we're talking about, there was a famine that swept all over the Roman Empire. And so these are impoverished Christians, they are persecuted Christians. And James starts by saying, count it all joy. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Really? Count it all joy, James? We are suffering. Now, now what does James mean when he says, count it all joy? It's very important as Christians that we get this right. Because when James says, count it all joy, he is not saying, be happy about everything that ever happens to you in life. Never be sad, never be angry, never be sorrowful, just kind of, it's all great. That's not Christian joy. That's being a psychopath. (laughs) That is. See, here's the thing. Like, I used to think I was a joyful person because I'm I'm positive. I am. I'm incurably positive. Our staff can tell you. I'm sure some of them like it, some of them don't. But I'm just, I'm positive about things. I look for the bright side. I have a smile on my face. And, you know, sometimes I I tend to downplay hardship in my life. I remember having a friend tell me one time, he said, Jeff, did you know you smile when you talk about hard things? And I'm like, really? Like, what is wrong with me? Like, something off about that. Yeah, it doesn't mean, counting it all joy, that you look at every single thing in your life and just kind of have this personality trait of, oh, it's all great. I'm a positive person. Joy in the Bible is a moral category. It's not a personality trait. It's not happy-go-lucky. Joy is a character trait that we develop, and I like the way Tim Keller says it, it's a kind of spiritual buoyancy. That's what joy is, that life and trials can press us down, but the orientation of our life is what? To come back up. What does it mean to come back up? It means that we keep drawing near to God. We keep hoping in God's promises. We keep persisting in obedience. We keep finding reasons to praise Him, and the trials of life don't push us away from God. They actually remind us to draw near to God. That's considering it all joy. That buoyancy, spiritually, we're going to keep coming back to God, keep hoping, keep trusting, keep obeying. Count it all joy is not primarily about the extent of our joy, okay? It's not every single thing that happened, all of it's good, none of it's bad. No, it's about the intensity of our joy. 
the depth of our joy. That yes, the world's on fire, my life's on fire, yet I have a confidence in God that cannot be suppressed. I have a hope in God that cannot be kept down. That's what it means. And why can we have that joy? Because Jesus is Lord of everything, including every trial you will ever encounter. Everyone. James does not give us an explanation here, an exhaustive treatment of why bad things happen to good people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, here's what you can know for sure when the heat comes, when you're reviled for Christ, when you are alienated for your allegiance to Christ, when you are sick, when you are ill, when you are poor, when you are suffering, what you can know is that even if that overwhelms you, it doesn't overwhelm Jesus. And in fact, Jesus always has a redemptive purpose. And here's why you have to believe in the absolute sovereignty of Jesus in your pain. Because if you don't believe in that, that means there's something outside of Jesus' redemption. That means there's some area of life that's just chaos and out of control, and Jesus is not Lord over it. That's a terrifying place to be. Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so it's believing that in God's mercy, there is something in me, and I don't know what it is, but I know that it is, and that God is working to develop me. That's why I can count it all joy. Because just as Jesus suffered in his earthly life and then entered glory, if I'm following Jesus, I'm going to walk the same path. This shouldn't surprise me. This shouldn't overtake me. It should say, yes, I am in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And now, what in the midst of pain does God want to produce in me? If it is true that Jesus is Lord over your suffering, then any hardship you go through is not wasted. It means there's always something that Jesus is trying to cultivate in you. And we don't have time this morning, but if you went to Romans 5, 3 through 5, and 1 Peter 1 through 6, and these other passages, the consistent testimony of Scripture is this, that God's redemptive purpose in pain is always to perfect us. It's just like an inviolate law that things go stronger through resistance, isn't it? Like, you know the people who don't get in shape at the gym, right? It's the people who get on the treadmill for two hours and walk about this pace, right? Hey, if that's all you can do, that's awesome. If I did that, not getting in shape, not enough resistance, right? I have to put some real resistance on my muscle to develop it. If you want your mind to grow, you, you can't read lowest common denominator garbage all the time, right? You have to read something that's going to stimulate you and challenge you and push you. And what's true physically and what's true intellectually is also true spiritually that your faith needs resistance training to grow. Jesus grew through suffering. Hebrews 5, he learned obedience through what he suffered. As he passed tests, his faith was brought to maturity. You, a servant, is not greater than his master. You're going to follow in the way of Jesus, suffering then glory, and God is going to grow you and perfect you. That means bring your faith to maturity through this. And so, the implication here, if Jesus is Lord over all of this, it's got to change my mindset towards suffering. Whatever the hardship is right now, 
there's a tendency to focus on the pain. Focus on the pain, focus on the pain, and then if you do that, you know what you're going to do? You're going to numb yourself from the pain. Right? You're going to try to avoid, check out, do anything you can to move away from the pain. A Christian, someone who believes Jesus is Lord, says, okay, what is God trying to produce through my pain? You have to ask this question. God has a redemptive purpose. What is he trying to produce? I like to think of it like this. You know how a baby needs to be weaned off of things. God is always trying to wean us off of things that we were depending on. Right? So when I face rejection from people or people don't like me, I have to say God is weaning me off of my dependence of needing human praise. Ultimately, God wants me to follow him because I want to please him and not people. Now, how's the only way you grow in that? <laughs> you got to suffer some rejection to learn that, no, I live to please God, not to please people. Maybe God afflicts me with a sickness or an illness. He allows that thing to come into my life. What is he weaning me off of? At some level, it's that I need to be comfortable and feel okay to keep pursuing Jesus. And if there is some thorn in my flesh, he is weaning me off my dependence on that to seek for a better pleasure in him and to find peace in the midst of pain. If, if I have financial hardship, at some level, what's he doing? He's weaning me off of the need for money to feel in control and trust that he's in control. So whatever you're facing right now, what you know 100% as a Christian is God has some redemptive purpose. Here's the thing, though. The pain won't profit you unless you submit to God's purpose. You realize everybody suffers. And I've met people who have suffered horribly who are bitter and malicious and selfish and insufferable to be around. And I've met people who have suffered just as much, even more, who are the kindest, most generous, most giving, self-sacrificing people, and they have joy. The difference is one learned God's purposes for them in the suffering, one just focused on the suffering and became resentful. And so that's the application question. What is God teaching you through the pain? He is always doing it in delight for his children. And ultimately, my, my comfort in suffering is this, that when I am in sorrow, I have a deeper fellowship with the man of sorrows. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3? He says he wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, which means when I am reviled for righteousness' sake, when I am alienated from others, when I am faithful and unacknowledged, when there is sickness and affliction on me, who do I have fellowship with? Jesus. In fact, I think what Paul's saying there is I'm going to know the intimacy of Christ's presence through this in a way that I wouldn't have. Because when I'm walking like that, who am I walking like? Like Jesus, whose life was marked by suffering and then glory. And so now it is a comfort to me that, oh no, that, that, that it's okay, that, that he is with me in this. It's also confidence because if I am on a path of suffering, where does it lead? It leads to glory just like Jesus. That's the confidence. And so 
in the midst of, of suffering, the joy is this, that the, the person set before us is Jesus. And that we are becoming like Christ by sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. We're knowing Christ more deeply. And, and I think the greatest comfort is this, that, that when we are in that suffering, that the joy set before us is Jesus. But remember, before we ever set our affections on Jesus, he set our affections on us. And the joy set before Jesus was you. That Jesus looked at the suffering of the cross and said, I would gladly suffer if it means I get you, if it means I get my bride. Jesus was rejoicing in a suffering we will never experience, in a suffering we will never imagine, the infinite suffering of dying for the sins of the world because he saw the joy of getting us. And so you should never doubt, Christian, in your darkest moment that Jesus is not with you because he went lower than that. He went under that to come get you. And if he went that low to get you, he's not going to leave you in your hour of darkness. In fact, he is going to be inclined to you. And his heart is drawn out all the more. Let's pray. Thank you for this letter, God. Um, I think of Hebrews 12 in your word that says that a father who delights in their son disciplines them that they might share in your holiness. And so, Lord, we want to submit to the discipline of your word in this series, and so we pray that it would unsettle us, it would make us uncomfortable, that it would give us spiritual sobriety, Lord, so that we see the areas that we have cordoned off from you. Help us submit to your lordship, Jesus. Thank you that you do not leave us, you do not forsake us. You are with us even in the hardest times. Pray it all in your name, amen.